Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. So good to see everyone. You're here today in a special place in that we are on message 135, which happens to be the last and final message of Luke's gospel. Because you have all made its way through, Randy's not here at the moment, but after the message, please see Randy. He, will, he has a million dollar bill that he would like to give you as your reward for making it through these 135 weeks of Luke's gospel. Witnesses of the resurrection. With that, as you're turning to Luke chapter 24, the last chapter of that gospel, and we're going to read verses 36 to 53 and consider this orderly account, I have a question for you. Would you die for a lie? Would you die for that which you know is not true? Now, we all know kids who lie, and they'll get spankings for lies. They'll take time out for lies. And even us, we might even lose a job to, to, to defend a lie or to keep a lie uh, going. But however, would you be willing to die for that which you know is not true. How far would you go to defend something you knew was not true that was a lie? Are you willing to suffer? Would you be willing to allow your loved ones to suffer and maybe themselves die for a lie? Now, consider this scenario in relation to the claims of the disciples that Jesus rose from the dead. One of the most convincing arguments for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus is that all of the disciples suffered and all but John died without recanting their testimony, a terrible death. John died uh, of old age. However, he was boiled in oil and uh, put on an island of Patmos. Now, some of you would say, but yeah, but Muslims die all the time for their faith. They're willing to strap themselves to bombs and blow themselves up. And you and I would consider that Muhammad and and, and Allah and all that they believe is a lie. However, it is not the same because their conviction is based on a demonic deception, a demonic deception. We understand that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. Today, Muslims are blinded and deceived, whereas the disciples gave firsthand accounts of Jesus. It's one thing to die because you are deceived. It is another to willingly die for that which you know is a lie that is untrue. Now, as we come to today's passage, Jesus is going to make a sudden appearance at the dinner table that stuns his disciples. Luke closes his orderly account of the eyewitnesses that he has collected over the years in order to give confidence and certainty that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Luke records that the the exaltation of Jesus serves to convince the disciples that he is alive. He then commissions them into service, into a mission, and then consecrates them as he ascends to heaven to take his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. 
Now, for those of you who weren't here last week, and for those who were, just a matter of view, last week we read of Jesus' encounter with his disciples, or two of his disciples, that were traveling on the road to Emmaus. As they shared with him all of the events of the betrayal, the torture, the crucifixion, the death, the burial of the man they believed was Jesus, the Messiah, served to dash their hopes. Jesus now spends time correcting their misinterpretation and application of Scripture. We learn that even today we have the need to accept, to interpret, and apply the Old Testament, not to unhitch it, not to degrade it, to dismiss it, along with the need for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes so that we may understand all the Scripture and that all the Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable to make us competent, mature for the work that God has given us. With that, in Luke chapter 24, verse 36, here on the monitor, begin, bring your Bibles for the rest won't be on there. We read this. As they were talking about these things, speaking of the disciples, remember the, the, the two from Emmaus come back to Jerusalem. They're in the upper room and they're talking about what's going on. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Now, if you have your Bible or a way to underline that, highlight it, underline those three words. Peace to you. Father, we thank you for this wonderful encounter. It has been preserved and transcribed for us throughout these ages so that we too may have certainty and confidence that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And as we just consider just these three words this morning, peace to you, these words are more than just a greeting, just more than a, hey, how are you doing? But these words have a doctrinal truth that happens only because the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Give us wisdom, discernment this morning. Help us to pay attention. Help our lives and our minds be transformed, not just by information, but fact that we respond to the Spirit's work in our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, as we approach the end of Luke, we can make three observations, and we're going to get right into them. First, we see here through this passage that Jesus convinces the disciples that he is indeed alive. So that's the first. Jesus here is going to convince the disciples he is alive. Now, as we come here, we see the disciples are still plagued by lingering doubts concerning the testimonies of the companions from, from the, the, the three women that went to the tomb, from Peter himself, from these two disciples that were walking on the road to Emmaus. Join me as we continue reading this in verse 37. But it says, but they were startled. Why? Because Jesus all of a sudden is standing among them. And they're frightened and they thought they saw a spirit, a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise within your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you can see that I have. Look at verse 40. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. It's still Sunday evening as we come to this passage. As disciples are sitting down for dinner, it's been the third day since Christ has been killed and buried. 
They're discussing all of the day's events of all the testimonies and the, and the ladies, Peter and others who are saying, we've seen Jesus, we've seen Jesus. His tomb is empty when Jesus suddenly appears uh, in their midst among them. It seems that instead of knocking on the door, Jesus just appears like a snap of the finger, a blink of the eye. He is there. In John's account of this evening, we read that the doors were locked where the disciples where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So it's not like Jesus just kind of opened the door and snuck in when they were too busy. So it's not as he could get himself into the door. They think he's a spirit. They think he's a ghost. They don't believe that he is real. Well, Jesus responds to their disbelief and to their lingering doubts by proving that he's his flesh and blood, by showing the scars on his body and then eating with them as a ghost. A, an apparition would not be eating. He eats among them. He wants them to see this. He wants to convince them that he truly is alive and he's among them in human flesh. You could pinch him and, and he, you could feel him. From this passage, we get a glimpse of the resurrected body of Christ that one day we ourselves will have as we see that he is flesh and blood. He eats and he drinks. They can touch him. They can see him. It is his body. He shows them the scars and wounds. It's recognizable. Interesting that in heaven, Jesus is going to be the only one in his glorified body with scars. The rest of ours will be healed. It's also supernatural, as it's not common for someone who is dead to rise up from the ground. Not only that, we see that he's able to vanish in and out as, at, at will. It's not so he can, he can walk through walls or he can vanish or something like that. Now, I don't know if we will have that ability in heaven or on the new kingdom, new earth. I think that'd be kind of cool if we could. Maybe that's how we'll be able to, to see the, the, the great and vast universe around the world. I don't know. But it's supernatural. So first, Jesus serves to, 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 goes to the rooms to convince them that he truly is alive physically. It is his body. But then secondly, as we continue in this passage, in this observation, we see that not only does he convince them, but now Jesus commissions his disciples into ministry. He commissions them into ministry. He reminds them of his teaching that he would fulfill all that scripture taught about a suffering Messiah. Look at verse 44. <clears throat> then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Those three things are how uh, Jews even today would refer to the Torah, the, the, the prophets, the writings, and the Psalms. He says, thus it is written in verse, uh, we're in verse 46, or verse 44, 45, this is very important. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. Again, you may want to underline that. Just as he opened the minds of the men of Emmaus, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, all that was spoke concerning him. And he said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance of, for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning right here from Jerusalem. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. 
And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. As he did with the disciples who traveled with him on the road to Emmaus, as I said just a moment ago, Jesus reminds them of what he had been teaching them while they were following him for those three years. He points them to what the scriptures, the Old Testament, had written about him, that he must suffer and die. And while doing that, he opens their spiritual eyes, so to speak, so that they may finally understand all that he had been teaching them. As you and I worked our way through the gospel, whether it was Matthew from years ago and then Mark and now Luke, we can see that the disciples, though loving him and being amazed at his teaching, many times did not fully understand what he was trying to teach them. There were many times they would walk away and they'd say, what did he just say? Did you get that? Huh? Uh, you know, the most famous words that are going to be spoken by anyone when they get into heaven is, oh, that's what he meant. And so here we see that their eyes are finally open, and now they're able to understand what Jesus had been saying for the last three years. You might recall earlier, in his, recur, earlier his disciples uh, that Jesus had proclaimed his ministry. You see it here on the, on, the, on the monitor. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth is passed away, not an iota, not a doubt will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. So Jesus is teaching them the law, the writings, the prophets, they all pointed to me, and I am the fulfillment of all that God has promised. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 1. Should be actually in the next page. Or maybe on the same page that you are. He then pivots, or actually, I guess you got John, don't you? I forget the whole book of John there. So go past John, you're in Acts. Turn to Acts 1. Jesus then pivots to share with them that salvation that he promised to come or promised to his disciples comes only through suffering and his victory over death. And that they are now to proclaim that forgiveness of sin comes from repentance. They are now being sent to take the message to the world. First, though, they must wait for the Holy Spirit. And though Luke shortens the time frame in his gospel, he points out in Acts 1.1 that Jesus spent 40 days teaching them and instructing them, preparing them for the day of the Holy Spirit and their time. In Acts 1.1, in the first book of Theophilus, Acts is written by Luke, written to the same person that Luke was written to, Theophilus. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. And after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles when he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. So just the first time eating there, uh, John goes, uh, the gospel of John goes into more detail. But we see there's many proofs as he appeared to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So during those 40 days, he's not only convincing them, but he's commissioning them. He's getting them ready for the job that he has given them and prepared them for. Thirdly, not only does he convince and commissions, thirdly, we see that Jesus consecrates the disciples. He consecrates disciples as they wait for the Holy Spirit. Luke closes his gospel recounting how Jesus ascended to heaven after blessing them. 
disciples are encouraged and continue to meet and worship, worship him. Look at verse 50 of verse 24, chapter 24, back in Luke. Luke 24, 50. And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. That's the consecration. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continuing in the temple, blessing God. Something dramatically happened from the day Christ died, rose again, and the 40 days later. They were convinced, they were commissioned, they were consecrated, and they responded with joy and worshiping continually. Now in Acts, we see that they worshiped every day of the work, of the day, of the, of the work, or every day. Let's say it that way. Every day after work, they would work hard in the fields, at the fishing boats, wherever they are, and then they would show up at the temple continually worshiping God. Their encounter during these 40 days with the resurrected Jesus gave them certainty, it gave them confidence, it gave them a boldness that they did not have, they did not have and also a joy as they prepared for the next step in ministry. Jesus had spent three years prepping them, preparing them for the day when he would pick up the, when they would pick up the reins as ambassadors and ministers of reconciliation. After Jesus' ascension to heaven, the disciples returned to Jerusalem with a purpose and a mission. Instead of great fear and trepidation, they are full of joy and worship. If we were to end the message right there, I would say that's you and I's response to the resurrection of Christ. We have, been, uh, we have been convinced, we have been commissioned, we have been consecrated. We are to respond with joy and worship as ambassadors for Christ. They needed to be convinced of his resurrection because they were commissioned and consecrated to be eyewitnesses of the wondrous miracle of Jesus Christ's resurrection. And then they were to proclaim of the necessity of repentance to obtain salvation. The disciples and many others would die a martyr's death declaring this truth. Again, would you die for a lie? Sean McDowell writes, I believe hopefully this is on the screen, yes. He says, even though they were crucified, stoned, stabbed, dragged, skinned, and burned, every last apostle of Jesus proclaimed the, the resurrection until his dying breath refusing to recant under pressure from the authorities. Therefore, their testimony is trustworthy and the resurrection is true. Luke's gospel, along with his acts of the apostles, serves to transmit confidence and certainty to his original readers. And by extension, all of those that follow Jesus Christ, that he is the Savior of the world. Amen. And that's the message that you and I have that has been passed down to us. Now, though we are not among the early eyewitnesses accounts or early eyewitness, eyewitness accounts to the resurrection of Jesus, theologian Wayne Grumman points out of the significance of the resurrection. And I'd like to share those with you. The significance of Jesus' resurrection is, number one, is that it ensures our regeneration. This is why it's important. That's why we need to be convinced of it. 
is that it ensures our regeneration. Regeneration, as you see there, is a secret act of God where he imparts a new spiritual life to us. It's a replacing of that old heart of stone and giving us a new heart of flesh. Remember, a heart we've defined as our mind, the things that we think. It's of our emotions, the things that we love, the things that we desire. And then it's the things of our will or our choices. And so what he's done is God has given us a new heart that can think new ways, desire and love different things, the things of God, and also choose the path of God. The apostle Paul, or the apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And not just born again, but born again to a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the resurrection of Christ, we need to be convinced, we need to understand we've been commissioned and consecrated. Why? Because it ensures that you and I are born again, our regeneration. Number two, it ensures our justification. Again, looking at Wayne Grumman, he says justification is an instantaneous legal act of God. It's not something that we do, it's something that God does for us in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. So it's that great exchange. We give him our sin, he gives us his righteousness, but also, and declares us to be righteous in his sight. Because we've been convinced and commissioned and consecrated. When Jesus looks at us, even when we fall, when we fail, when we give the temptation, he sees us, as righteous. His anger, his wrath is satisfied. There's no mixture in his eyes and heart towards us when we fail. Just love. So justification is a legal act of God where he declares, you are not guilty, you are now righteous, even though we did not deserve it. A couple scriptures here to see that. His righteousness will be counted to those who believe in him, who raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our what? Our justification. The first words of Christ to his disciples, you remember what they were? I had you underline them, highlight them. Peace to you. That was more than just a greeting. There is a doctrinal justification happening to them. Paul writes, since we have been justified by faith in Romans 5.8 or 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He was doing more than calming their fears. He was letting know because of their convincing, their commissioned, and their consecration that they now have a right standing with God They have peace. That is once one of the most wonderful gods, uh, wonderful gifts of God. The scripture also tells us is that we no longer, in Romans 8, 1, there's no longer any condemnation 
to those that are in Christ Jesus. Thirdly, Wayne Grumman says, because of the resurrection, the significance is that it ensures our resurrected bodies. Glorification is the final step. That's what's called glorification. Glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ returns and raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and reunites them with their souls and changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. Paul writes, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his own power. And 2 Corinthians says, knowing that he who raised Jesus will raise us also up with him and bring us into his presence. In Romans 6, 5, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrected body like his. These insurances, insurances fulfill the promise of the Father who promises in Romans 8. He says, those he predestined, he also called, and those who he justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen? This is the wonderful truth that God has given us all because of the resurrection. He predestined, he called, he called, he justified, he justified you also glorify. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. The other two, you know, this third one is what we're going to focus on the most. I think we spent many years now on the regeneration, on justification. I pray that you understand it. If not, please let me know. I want you to understand it. For only, without, for only with regeneration and justification can you ever have any hope of salvation, of a glorified body. In 1 Corinthians 15, in this passage, Paul writes to the church of Corinth to give them certainty and confidence concerning the resurrection of Jesus. Some in the church have been asserting that Jesus had not, by, had not been risen from the dead, that he's still buried, uh, that others are not going to be, there's not going to be any resurrection of anyone else. We're not going to go deeply into this passage as we normally do, but we're going to read through it. And I want to point out a few facts, not only about the resurrection of Christ, but also some details about the resurrected body, the glorified body you and I will have. So let's begin with verse 1, as he tells them to hold fast. So first we see, hold fast, your faith is not vain. Look at there at verse 1, I believe. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So as we sing that song, that was a great providence there. I didn't ask Brandon to, to play that song. I would have if I would have thought about it, but he will hold me fast. We need to understand is this is the word of God. Luke's gospel, you and I need to hold on to the fat, to the facts, fast to the facts that Jesus is resurrected. We go on in verse 3 to see that uh, there is a list of eyewitnesses. Peter, Paul is saying, listen, here's who saw it. Look at verse 3, for I delivered you what first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. <coughs> so that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Then he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve. We just read of that just a moment ago in Luke. 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers during those 40 days at one time. Most whom Paul says, they're still alive. You can speak to them. They can share with you personally what happened, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. And then in verse 7, he says, then he appeared to James. This is his brother. Remember, James was not a believer at this time. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, speaking of the road to Damascus. So what you and I see here is not only are we to hold fast, so our faith is not in vain, but we see that there are many eyewitness accounts of Jesus. But also we see that if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then there is a futility of our faith, of our trust in the person of God. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? That's the issue. They believe that once you're dead, that's it. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Paul says if you, if you say that the believers will not be raised from the dead, then Jesus didn't, because it would be futile. In verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. You cannot have one without the other. They go together. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. You're not regenerated. You are not justified. And then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died in Christ, have perished. There is no hope for them. There is nothing being kept that's imperishable, unfading. If, in verse 19, in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all of all people most to be pitied. Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. If we're not going to be raised from the dead and glorified, he says you ought to be just be pitied because you're believing a lie. You've been deceived. But then he goes on in verse 35 to answer the question, well, how in the world could this be? He says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? That's a good question. With what kind of body do they come? Well, you foolish person, Paul writes, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps, of some wheat or some other grain. Speaking now, he's using a, a farmer thing. What happens is, what do you do with a, a piece of grain, corn? You bury it. It dies so that it can come to life. But look at verse 30, uh, 39. Uh, no, verse 38. But God gives it a body as he has chosen to each a seed, kind of a seed of its own body. For verse 39, for, for not all flesh is the same. We understand this. There is one kind for humans. There's another for animals. There's another for birds and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another so there are two different types of bodies, one for heaven, one for earth. Look at verse 41. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for the stars different from, uh, from stars in glory. So the body is going to be different than what you and I have here. He then points out the importance of a resurrected body in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. 
What is sown perishable? What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Verse 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. Then comes the spiritual The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, speaking of Jesus Christ, the second man, the second Adam. Verse 48, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. That's why we say from dust to dust we come. And as the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, the resurrected body of Christ. He goes on in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So Paul is trying to take them through there and try to logically share with them through biblical doctrine is that the perishable body that you and I that dies cannot reap heaven. It must be a glorified body. He closes then with a promise from verse 51. Behold you, I'll tell you a mystery. Something that was held from you, but now is being opened. We shall not all sleep. We shall not all die. But he's speaking of believers. We shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, For the trump will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall all be what? Changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But look at verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We read of that just earlier. Victory in Jesus. Why? Because we are going to be called, we are going to be justified, and then one day glorified. Each and every body that is in the ground that believed in Jesus Christ will be reunited and be glorified doesn't matter if you've been buried in the ground, if you've been lost at sea. It doesn't matter if you've been cremated and your ashes spread around. All of that will come and God will bring that together. And in some supernatural, wonderful way, he will give us a glorified body that is flesh and blood, that will be recognizable, that will be perfect and also supernatural. All of this is a gift of God to us. The truth of the resurrection of Christ is meant to compel us to preach and proclaim the good news of that the forgiveness of sin to all who repent. You and I are to do that to our family, to our friends, and by extension, through the whole world. Why? Because that is the promise of God to all who would repent, that they too may be glorified and have a place in the new kingdom of God. As Christians, you and I should understand that this world is only temporary. 
And that judgment awaits every person. Uh, and, and, then, and that judgment, excuse me, awaits every person. Scripture informs us that Christ will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And that all will give account to him who is the judge, the living and the dead. I pray that you hear this morning and all who watch me later or hear my voice later, that you are one of those that are eagerly waiting for him to return for that glorified body. Pastor Steve Lawson tweeted out last week, every knee will bow to Jesus. That is a fact. Either in salvation or in damnation, every knee will bow. Every unbeliever, every false teacher, every cult member, every atheist, every knee will bow on that last day. I pray today that you are bowing already, proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. And that's why it's incumbent upon us to obey the commands, the instructions, the encouragements, and the warnings of Jesus in the entire Bible. However, far too many professing Christians are more earthly-minded than heavenly-minded. Their hearts are in love with this world. We desire the things of the world. We are caught up in all the, the entertainment and the joys that this world, the false promises of this world, instead of the Trinity. John, the half-brother of Jesus, warns, Do not love the world nor the things that are of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We must understand this. Instead, the Holy Spirit provokes us to a higher standard. In Colossians chapter 3, he says, If you've then been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Amen? In that resurrected, glorified body. Now, this is difficult to set our mind on the things of heaven, to disregard the things of earth, to not be in love with the things of the world. It is so attractive. Satan knows how to make it to entice us. It's so easy to get caught up in our daily affairs, whether it's our work, whether it's our children, whether it's the events of our children. There are so many things competing for our attention. Our spouses, our children, our parents, our work, politicians, influencers, so on and everything else. They are vying for your, comp uh, your attention. Think on me. Yet you and I must respond as disciples did as Luke closes out the gospel. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. I'm so thankful you're here this morning. This is what God has called us to do, is for each and every one of us to come before him to worship. Now that's just not on Sundays. We should be doing it every day of the week. Why? Because God has called us to be worshipers. We must be about our Lord's work. He is the Savior of the world. And let me share with you, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what the consequences might be, you and I must carry on the mission that he has given us. 
We have been convinced here of his resurrection. You and I have commissioned to share the good news of the, con- of the gospel, and we've been consecrated. We've been blessed for that work. So let us be about what God has called us to do. I want to close with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Going back to Paul's letter to the church of Corinth, he ends his defense of the resurrection of Christ and the promises of our resurrection with these encouraging words. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Did I not have that meme up there? Um, so that was a cool meme too. The best one yet. 1 Corinthians 15, if you're still there, you may want to look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. My friends, let's be about what God has convinced us of, what he has commissioned us for, and what he's consecrated us to be. Before we pause, consider, and pray, and respond, this is our last message in the Gospel of Luke. We started it in December, I believe, of 2019. We made it through COVID so many times, through Facebook and other types of ways, and then coming back together. And I want to thank you. This has been a wonderful journey through the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to take a break from the next few weeks, and we're going to be doing a little bit more of some topical series. Ben, do you have that uh, up there, that, uh, that, that, that one slide? If you can do that. We're going to be doing a two- to three-week, maybe a little bit longer series on forgiveness, pursuing restoration. As we see in our life, many of us struggle with bitterness, malice, resentment, anger. We have many people in our lives, or maybe in ourselves, that we're struggling forgiving. We may even struggle understanding what is forgiveness? What is biblical forgiveness? Well, we're going to unpack that, what biblical forgiveness is. And I'm going to tell you that it's probably much different than what you think forgiveness is. And so we're going to be pursuing restoration over the next few weeks as we unpack what is biblical forgiveness. So join with me. As I said, I'm not sure how long it's going to be. I know I've got at least two, maybe three weeks in it. But be with us as we just take a little bit of time of doing a topical study on a very key point that God has called each and every one. Forgiveness is actually a mark of a true, genuine believer, a Christian. And so we, it's important for us to know what that is. So with that, with every head bowed and every closed, I'm just going to take you a moment as Randy comes up for pastor's prayer, just to pause and consider the resurrection of Christ and all that it means that we've been regenerated, that we have been justified, and that one day, praise God, we'll be glorified. May he come quickly. I would pray that you then take a moment just to pray. And I will ask the Holy Spirit to give you direction that you may respond to the convincement, the commission, and the consecration he's called you to. Manny, would you come and close us? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.